Yeah. What a powerful word that is. Thank you, Jeanette. That was a great reading. Um, how many of you have ever seen, out of a show of hands, how many of you have ever seen any of the Jason Bourne movies? Wow, okay, about half. So, if you haven't seen it, which that's about half of you, um, it's their action-packed films um, where the main character, Jason Bourne, um, who is a special agent or an assassin, um, suddenly forgets who he is. He has a severe case of amnesia. And as he attempts to discover his identity, exactly who he is, he keeps bumping into all of these crazy scenarios where people are trying to kill him. And the reason that that's happening is the agency that he used to work for is trying to snuff him out because he's just collateral damage now. And you can't kill this guy, Jason Bourne, so easily, though, because, well, you know, he's Jason Bourne. And, you know, he's, he's like James Bond on steroids, right? I mean, that guy just, you can't beat this guy. And it's interesting, as you watch these films, initially there was three, you've got these aerial shots of these beautiful, iconic cities throughout Europe, right? Paris, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got these really cool aerial shots, London, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then people are discussing about Jason Bourne and some of the intel he's collected at these just gorgeous cafes and all of these landmarks. But all of that sort of begins to fade into the background when the main character shows up and you know it because the music kicks on. Oh, here comes Jason Bourne, a.k.a. Matt Damon right? When he was younger. And here comes Jason Bourne, right? And even though sometimes you're still grasping for some details, like, wait, well, hold on. Who, uh, wait, why, why was he there? And how did he, who, who, why is that person shooting at him? And what's, what, what's going on? It doesn't matter because, dun, 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 right? Jason Bourne is there and it's on. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's quite similar to that in that he lacks some details that say Mark or Luke do. But what he continues to do is he points to Jesus, specifically who Jesus is. So every time Matthew recounts a story, the music's kicking in. Okay, let me guess. It's Jesus, right? I got it. I got it, Matthew. That's what's happening in our text this morning. There's three episodes. And with every one of these episodes, Jesus still has the spotlight on him. First, there's the scene where Matthew sets the rig up. He sort of sets the stage, as it were, in verses 1 through 2. Then in verses 3 through 5, we have the skirmish. Finally, in verses 6 through 8, the statement. The scene, the skirmish, and the statement. And with all these episodes, the big idea is Jesus who has authority. And, and 
We've seen this theme played out before, haven't we? Jesus with authority. He has authority over the natural. He has authority over the supernatural. I mean, it's pretty comforting to know that, yes, Jesus has authority over disease and disasters and demons. We can trust in his authority and rejoice in it. But now the volume is turned up. Or to use another illustration, in chapter 9, it crescendos, as it were. Because now in chapter 9, not only does Jesus display authority over disease and disasters and the demonic, he displays authority over sin. He forgives this man his sins. So now this has come to a full crescendo here. Jesus has the power over sin. Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority. So where we're going today to sort of pivot point off of this text is the scene, the skirmish, and the statement. That's where we're headed. So if you have your Bibles, you can track along with me in Matthew chapter 9. And before we look at this together, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we come this morning as needy sinners. Lord, even if we don't view ourselves that way, you see us as such. So Lord, we come now and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of sin that you would point to the Savior and that we would throw all of our weight on the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name and for his glory. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so remember the Jason Bourne, right? Some of you are going to go watch it now. Don't judge me if there's crazy scenes in it, okay? I'm just, you know, didn't endorse all the movie. So, um, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is so much the central of focus here that even, I don't want you to miss this, even in chapter 9, when he recounts the story, he doesn't even include the disciples. Do you see that? He, he crossed over and came to his own city. He talks in the singular there. He's totally dropped the disciples. They've sort of faded out of the picture. It's an interesting phrase how he says, his own city. Did you see that there? His own city is how he describes Capernaum. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but he resided in Capernaum. I remember when Nancy Rich passed and Peter Wakeley was doing the funeral here. And I don't know why, just the way he said it was really cool, how he said, born in Wyoming, raised, uh, uh, now I'm butchering it, Raised in Palmdale, or what, not raised, but moved to Palmdale when, he, when she married you. That's right. And then passed in Wyoming, something like that. I'm probably butchering it. But Jesus is born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but Capernaum is actually his base of operations. This is where he will be a citizen, as it were. And when he comes back to this place, when he comes back to Capernaum, it's only natural to assume that monstrous crowds are yet again gathering around him. Remember how he left before he crossed over, before the storm happened? Big crowds, healing people, casting out demons. 
And that's exactly what's going on. In fact, people in Capernaum, now he's got a reputation. Jesus has a reputation of, of being a, a healer, right? And so here comes these men, and they bring this paralytic, this paralyzed, this disabled man, lying on a mat to Jesus. You see that in verse 2? And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. In those times, it would have been terrible to suffer from paralysis. It's terrible today to suffer from paralysis, but you, back then, you, there were no government subsidies or any kind of support. You had to provide for yourself, but then you couldn't work. So then how are you going to protect yourself? You see, it's, it's a, and you couldn't even bathe yourself. That's a very uh, terrible place to bathe. No government assistance. And this man is in a desperate situation. And if you lived back then and you were on your way to work and you saw someone in this dire circumstance, it would be pretty uncomfortable to see someone laying there, sort of rotting away, as it were, a real pitiful existence. Sad to see. It would have been uncomfortable to see that. He, he may have been even paralyzed in speech because he doesn't say anything in this account. So you can't walk, you can't work, you can't even bathe yourself. What if your family's gone? To, no one can look after you. What an awful situation. But Jesus speaks to him as an individual created in the image of God who has worth and value and his, his words that he uses, you can see it in the text, his words that he uses are seasoned with kindness and endearment. Look at verse 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. My son, my child, take heart, have courage. Now, if you saw someone in this dire situation, you would assume that his most desperate need is for physical aid. Here is this guy suffering from paralysis, and you'd think that the solution to his problem is to be cured of the paralysis, right? I mean, is it that why these dudes brought the man to Jesus to start with? And Jesus heals him, but look what comes first. Jesus addresses his spiritual problem. Then he deals with his physical problem. He heals him first by forgiving his sins. The man's greatest need is not for physical healing, but for redemption. The, the most precious gift Jesus could give him is not the ability to walk, but the forgiveness of his sins. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that what Matthew's already highlighted? You will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Much deeper need here that the man has, a much deeper need than just what we see, and that is his sins. He didn't say, notice there, Jesus didn't say, your sins might be forgiven. But, but he actually speaks in the present. They are at this moment forgiven. 
Hold on. To pardon sins? I mean, it was nice, yeah. I mean, Jesus' compassion here is, is certainly moving. That's nice. He speaks words of tenderness. We already got that. But, but to pardon his sins committed against God? And to claim he can do so on his own authority? Who does he think he is? God alone can forgive sins. They're nowhere near the Jewish temple that's in Jerusalem. This isn't the day of atonement where you go make sacrifices for your sins. And hello, this guy's a chippy. He's a carpenter. He's a tradie going on here? Forgive your sins? Now we set up the skirmish. Verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. What a horrible thing to think. This is the first tiff or showdown Matthew records of Jesus with his, the religious elite. And, and, and these skirmishes are, are going to pop up next week. And In fact, the conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment will now be a pattern in Matthew. We're going to see all the way to the end of this book. Isn't it shocking, though, that the scribes can sit there, watch a miracle, and still have such hard hearts? Have you ever noticed that sometimes the same event, the same circumstances in a person's life can produce two radically different spiritual results? What I mean is, say one person goes into hospital with a horrible disease. The church prays for them, and by the mercy of God, they are healed. Yet, they are still just as apathetic. They could still give a rip about the things of God. But on the other hand, another person goes into hospital, church prays for them, and by the mercy of God, they're healed, and life has changed. They're committed to Christ, following in his way, serving in his kingdom. Same events, same circumstances, two radically different results. Have you ever witnessed something like that? You know, friends, we gotta be careful as we hear God's word taught week by week that we don't become calloused to it. We have to guard against apathy and hardness of heart. So how are you responding to Jesus today? Are you submitting to his ways and to his rule? Or are you rejecting it? The rest of us might be fooled with where you're at spiritually. You've sort of got your talk down. But listen to me. Jesus looks into the depth of your soul this morning and he sees it for what it is. You might have developed friendships here. You might enjoy coming and singing songs and having a tea. But have you come to the place, friend, where you understand your sin has offended God who is holy? and you've cast all of your sin upon Jesus, and your life is now different. There's a difference in your life. I don't mean you've sort of learned to sort, you, you know, the, the rhythms, as it were, of the little God talk that you say around here, and you've got some friends. I mean that there's a genuine work of grace 
that God is doing in your life? How are you responding to Jesus? I think it's really easy for us to stand on the sidelines and look at the scribes and say, oh, that's dreadful. But in Jesus looks into the depth, into the inner part of your soul that no one else sees. And he sees it for what it is. That's what he does with these guys in verse four. Do you see that? Jesus knowing their thoughts. He knows their, you know, you can, you can put your, your best edited version of yourself in the world today. You know, selfie, Facebook, whatever, even here. But Jesus looks into the depth of your soul. He knows your thoughts. And, and, he, and he says to them, notice there in verse 4 what he says. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? I can typ- typically guess what my wife is thinking. We've been married for almost 15 years now. Sometimes I get in trouble because I think I know what she's thinking. So I wasn't thinking that. Sorry, honey. But she usually knows what I'm thinking. And if you've been married for, say, more than 10 years, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can walk into a room and you're like, oh, I bet my wife, I bet my husband's thinking that. That's just how it rolls. But this is on a whole other level. Imagine you're thinking, you're one of the scribes, and to be fair enough, this guy is claiming to have the authority to forgive sins. This chippy from a bumpkin town called Nazareth is pardoning, dismissing this guy's sins, not on Yom Kippur, not at the temple. Okay? So, so to be fair, you're like, he's breaking all the rules. He's breaking all the rules, really. And as you're thinking that, and you go, you know what? Not as he breaking all the rules, he's blaspheming. And just as you're thinking that, you know, but hey, you don't say anything out loud. You might have texted your friend that, you know, but you're not saying anything out loud. And Jesus turns, this chippy from Nazareth, turns, looks at you right in the eye and says, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? I'm not blaspheming. What's easier to say? And then he he spins this rhetorical question at them. Verse five, right? You see that? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? It's interesting. Just remember here, be very careful here. Jesus has not yet said, get up and walk. Jesus has not yet healed him physically. This guy is still on his back. But Jesus' authority to cure the disabled man proves that he has the same authority to forgive him. In other words, the latter proves the former. Does that make sense? Everyone can physically see if someone was disabled and came in here and I said, get up and walk, and it didn't work, you know, what a farce, <laughs> right? What a scallywag this guy is. But I'm not Jesus, first of all. But Jesus not only says, I'm going to prove that I've got the authority not only to heal him physically, but I'm, what I've already stated, his sins are forgiven. In other words, the, for, the latter proves the former. Does that make sense? And then he drops this peculiar theological bomb to sort of prove this reality with a statement. 
statements matter. Theological statements matter. And he says, this is his phrase, the son of man. See that in verse 6? This is the statement now in verse 6. He says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. That's an interesting phrase. I mean, to us living in Australia in the 21st century, likely that phrase doesn't do much. It, it might even sound confusing or strange. Who's the son of man? What does that phrase even mean? That's a word we've heard from Jesus' mouth already, though. Do you remember when the would-be disciple runs up to Jesus you know, hey, Jesus, old buddy, old pal, I'm willing to follow you anywhere. Anywhere! And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Son of Man. What does that mean? What does Son of Man imply? When we reach back into the Old Testament, the term son of man is used to distinguish between God and humans. Does that make sense? You have God, and then you have man. Massive disparity between the two like, that we'll never understand. God, man. For example, uh, Numbers 29 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is referred to as the son of man over 90 times. Essentially, this is a catchphrase to say human being or to separate God from mankind. Does that, does that make sense? That's typically what it is in the Old Testament until you get till... The book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, that phrase, son of man, in fact, I want you to turn there real quick. See this with your own eyes. Daniel um, chapter 7, and if you have a pew Bible, it is page 745. There's a whole lot going on here. Um, the seventh chapter begins by describing four different earthly kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. All these kingdoms are depicted as tyrannical beasts that are rapists, terrifying, and cruel to their people. Uh, the preceding verses then turn, after it describes these four kingdoms, they, they turn to a vision. They basically bring us into the heavenly courtroom where this, there's this superhuman figure, as it were, the son of man. You still tracking with me? Four kingdoms, bad. Not very powerful. Seem like they are really powerful, but compared to the son of man, only a, a little drop in the bucket. So here's the son of man now in chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like, what? A son of man. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, that's amazing. This text highlights clearly this authority of this figure. Are you catching that there? It's a lot of sort of wordy stuff, especially if you're like, I didn't even know where the book of Daniel was until just now. That's okay. But I think you can see clearly that there's this idea of this figure, right? This superhuman type of figure. Probably sounds like, I'm, sounds like a Marvel movie. He's greater than Thanos, okay? He doesn't need the golden glove. He made the golden glove. Anyway, well, now I'm going to get distracted with it. There's this figure that has authority. He depicts a son of man who is more than a human figure, right? Now, why am I sharing all this? Why did I take you here? Why are you looking at all this? Because what is it that Jesus stresses to the scribes? What is the words that he uses? He says, right, if you want to turn back there, you can. In Matthew 9, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive what? Sins. Jesus is the only one on earth with all the power and right to forgive sins. And Matthew highlights this idea of the Son of Man 30 different times. Son of Man, Son of Man, so over 30 different times. And he's every time, it's interesting too, Jesus is the one who designates himself as the Son of Man. And when he appears before the high priest Caiaphas, and Caiaphas, and they're having this kangaroo court, right? And they're saying, tell us if you are the Son of God. Tell us plainly. Come on now, tell us. Do you know what he says? He says, you'll see the Son. He says, yep, it's true. And you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And what does Caiaphas do? He's not an idiot. Rips his robe. He says, it's blasphemy. We don't need any further witnesses, do we? He's claiming to be that figure from Daniel. He's not just claiming to be the guy that's the separation between God and man. No, 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 no. In fact, Matthew has three categories, son of man. There's this earthly activity, son of man. Second, Jesus' predictions of his, of his death and resurrection. And lastly, there's this third category where Jesus is going to come back in his future glory to judge. Three categories. And, and if you're like, man, I like this stuff. I want to get some more of this son of man stuff. Hey, guess what? You can can put you to bed at night. I've got, I only printed three of them out here, 15 pages. I had to sit here and spend hours writing in seminary on the Son of Man. So there you go. Knock yourself out. Don't all rush up here at once after service. Okay? So you can, and if, and if you want more, I guess maybe Julian can print you out some more. So Jesus says though, do you, do you see the significance of this? Beyond all that, you know, get the paper or not, or whatever. But do you see the significance of this? Jesus is claiming his authority himself to forgive sins. He's taking on himself this messianic figure of the Messiah as the Son of Man. Listen, for Jesus to walk up to this guy claiming to be the Son of Man and then say your sins are forgiven, he is either insane, he is either lying, or he's telling the truth. 
Great prophets, great moral teachers, philosophers don't do things like this. Only the Son of God, who has the authority to forgive sins, does. And look what happens here, if you want to go back to Matthew. But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. The great physician can not only heal the sick and still the storms and deal with demons, but he can bring to the human soul the thing that it needs the most, the forgiveness of sin. The central message of Christianity is that God will forgive your sins through Jesus Christ. There is no greater news in the whole world than this, friend. Trust in Jesus and you will be made right before God. No matter how sinful your past or even your current situation, God is gracious and through Christ, he will wipe your sins away. But you need to turn to him. You need to place your faith in Christ. By simply hearing that information, it's like we're standing outside these doors watching cars go by. The way that we get into that car is by turning from sin, embracing Jesus Christ for the hope of forgiveness and eternal life. Does that make sense? We cannot just watch the car go by and say, yeah, I'm in that car. No, you're not. Wake up. Turn to Jesus now or you will be judged. The Son of Man is not going to be this beautiful with arms open wide. He's going to come back in wrath and squash you under his judgment unless you turn. And every one of you in this room has an opportunity to do that now. I'm not quite sure, to me, if I can just be frank, I'm not quite sure why some of you come here every week, hear this, and put it off. I, I, I don't, I'm not saying that as a way to be a jerk. I'm just saying your life hangs by a slender thread of sovereign grace. A and it's absolutely insanity to me to, that you would think that you're just going to keep on coming back here each week and then maybe die and then not face God's judgment and wrath. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You can have that assurance. But some of you just keep putting this off. I don't know why. Is it because you weren't holding on to a particular sin? Do you think that sin is more valuable than knowing Christ? Nothing is more greater than knowing Jesus. Is it, is it an evidence thing? Please come talk to myself or Rob or Dan or Andrew. We, we would love to sit down and show you these truth claims about Jesus. This is true. This is fact. But I hope 
I hope, friend, today as you see that bus, as it were, goes by called Christianity, that you don't just see it from a distance, that you embrace Jesus in faith, turning from your sin. Would you do that today? How are you going to respond to Jesus? Remember the Lord. You might think right now, yeah, you know what? I'm never going to do that. Not me. No way. Do do you understand Jesus looks into the depths of your soul? Didn't we just see that already? He's looking now into the depth of your soul. Turn to Jesus today and be saved. Let's pray. Lord, would you grant salvation? Would you quicken dead hearts? Lord, people here will never come unless you grant them repentance. So would you do that for your glory's sake? May we rejoice to see someone like us, Lord, a sinner brought to salvation. That if they confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised you, Lord, from the dead, they will be saved. So, Lord, would you, for the rest of us, as we continue to respond, help us to have supple hearts and to rejoice in who you are as this Son of man who has the authority. Thank you, Lord, that we can be forgiven and saved. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.